We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Mark chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. This is the word of the Lord. Take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Gracious God, we have prayed to you. We have sung to you. We have confessed to you. And now we need to hear from you. Uh, We don't just need human words to inspire us. We need your words. We need words of life words of hope, words that can speak into the brokenness and the chaos of our lives this morning. You know that we come from so many different places. Some of us come with a deep sense of your presence, and we want more. Others of us come, it feels like you are a million miles away, and we are wondering where you are. And God, some of us come traumatized, by another video of police brutality against a black body, wondering if justice will ever come. On the one hand, we come from so many places, but on the other hand, we come from the same place, in need of your grace, in need of your mercy, in need of your kindness, in need of your words and your voice, and so we ask that you would speak, and that you would speak in such a way that our lives would be changed. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, We have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, uh, if you're new with us today, and today we come to what is kind of a very famous passage. Uh, It's what theologians call the Transfiguration. And it is sort of kind of crazy, all right? It's, it's, there's a little bit of like a sci-fi movie going on here. Uh, the word transfigured in verse 2 comes from the Greek word for metamorphosis. Jesus is literally transformed before uh, their very eyes. And it's a very strange scene in the Gospels. And so I have, you have lost no sleep about this passage this week, but I have lost a lot of sleep 
about this passage this week. Uh, the question I've been wrestling with all week is, why is this here? And what is the point of this passage? And how is it supposed to change our lives? And here's what I think. Uh, I think this passage is all about worship and wonder. For the rest of the Gospels, Jesus looks like this ordinary human being. He's the kind of person that when he walked by, you could have missed him. But in this moment, the veil is pulled back. And the disciples see, they get this glorious vision of Jesus. They see him for who he really is. You know, it's kind of like in, in the rest of the Gospels, Jesus is walking around like Clark Kent. And in this moment, he's like, Superman, you know. And the disciples, here's the point, they are left in awe and wonder at the end of this passage. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be on this mountain? And you see, if you think about it, if you think about it, this sort of wonder is what we are all looking for. We were built to worship. We're built for praise, actually. I remember when my kids were little and they were first learning to talk, and one of the first words they learned was the word, wow. They'd look at all these things and they'd say, wow. They'd, they'd look at a bird and they'd say, wow. And you'd show them the moon and they'd go, Wow. You take them to the ocean for the first time and they say, wow. And you're like, yes, all of these things are amazing. But then sometimes you would give them a cheese stick and they would go, wow. And you're like, no, cheese sticks are not wow. <laughs> cheese sticks are good, but they're not wow if cheese sticks are your thing. You see, we were built to worship. We were built to praise. We were built for wonder, but we are like little children walking around wondering at all of the wrong things. We look at money and we say, wow. We look at power and prestige and we say, wow. We look at sex and status and we say, wow. We look at bigger homes and better cars and the number of likes on social media, and we say, wow. And you see, but the more, can we just be honest this morning? The more you get those things, the less wowed you are by them. The, the more you get them, the less glorious they seem. It's why you always need more. And it's not, it's, listen, it is not that those things are bad. They're not bad. It's that they don't work. They don't work. Uh, David Foster Wallace, who's a, who is a, he was a very well-known atheist writer, he once wrote this. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. This is an atheist saying this. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough and never feel like you are enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. So here's the question. Is there anything that if you get more of it, it can actually make you more whole? And not less full, but more full. Is there there anything that the more you worship and wonder at it, not the less glorious it becomes, but actually the more glorious it becomes? This passage says yes, and it is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do together this morning. I want us to simply wonder together at the person of Jesus as he is revealed to us in this passage. Let's wonder at him together. Let's wonder at who he is. Let's wonder at why he came. And let's wonder at what he's promised to do. Okay? So who he is. Now, verse 2, I want, look at the text there. It begins in verse 2. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up a high mountain. Now, when Mark writes after six days... That is his way of saying, I want to connect what I'm about to say to what I have just written about. And we actually looked at these uh, verses last week. We looked at the very end of chapter 8. And if you you weren't here, you don't remember, Jesus asked the disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. In other words, they're saying, you know, Jesus was this great teacher, right, sent from God. But then Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Christ, the Messiah. You know, this, this is Peter's way of saying you are God in human form, this radical claim about the identity of Jesus. Now, what is so interesting is that here we have Jesus with the disciples just six days later, and they are on a mountain, and guess who else is there? Elijah. And so is Moses, and we're going to get to him in just a minute. But the disciples, they get this dazzling vision of Jesus, and he is talking to Moses and Elijah, but then look at this in verse 8. This is is the key to the text. It says, suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Moses and Elijah are there. They've just been Talking about them, Jesus, some people are saying, you're, you're, you're Elijah, you're another prophet, and all of a sudden, they're gone. What is going on here? Jesus is confirming Peter's confession. He's not just telling them who he is, but he is showing them who he is, that he is not just another prophet. He's not just another religious teacher. You cannot put him on par with Elijah or Muhammad or Buddha or anyone else. He is not one way among many ways to God. He is the only God. He is who Peter said he was. He is God in the flesh. You see, one of the things I hear people in Oakland say a lot is, it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. What matters is how you live. You don't have to accept his claims. What's important is that you follow his teachings. And this passage is saying, wrong, 
wrong, wrong. In fact, every single page of the New Testament is saying, Jesus, it's the exact opposite. It's not, it's not what you think about his teachings. It's you, the starting point of Christianity is, is he who he said he was? And you see, let, let's apply this real fast. If Jesus is nothing more to you than just another religious figure in the pantheon of religious figures who has some helpful things to say about how you can live and improve your life and be a better person. You may become very moral. You may become very religious. You might even go to church a lot. But there will be no wonder in your life when it comes to Jesus. There'll be no worship, no praise, no wow. There'll be no moments where he takes your breath away. God will always seem kind of boring to you. And maybe you have spent your entire life in church, and that is exactly where you find yourself this morning. See, but when you come to see him, as what the writer of Hebrews 1 says, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. Or what Colossians 1 says, he is the image of the invisible God, that all things were made by him and through him and for him, and that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. When you come to see him like that, there will be an increasing sense of wonder and worship in your life at the person of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who are here this morning and you're Christian, see, you have to keep coming back to this in the Christian life. It is so easy to think, oh, yeah, okay, I got, you know, I'm ready to move on from, like, Christianity 101. That is the most dangerous thing in the world. No, the Christian life is about seeing and savoring Jesus. It is about coming back to that over and over and over again. You see, sometimes we get really caught up in doing things for God. Or we say, God, show me what to do. Or God, tell me what your will is. When the thing that we really need to be saying is, God, show me more of who you are. Show me more of your power. Show me more of your glory. Show me more of your character. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, that would be really easy if I could have an experience like these disciples in Mark chapter 9, wouldn't you want that? You can cultivate this in your life. Let me give you two very practical ways, both from this passage, about how to cultivate deeper wonder and worship in your own life. Here's the first. Look what the Father says in verse 8. He says, This is my Son, whom I love, Listen to him. How do we listen to Jesus today? We listen to him by opening his word. See, the Bible is not meant to be busy work for you. It is meant to be the voice of Jesus in your life. And if you want to cultivate wonder and worship in your life, if you want to see and savor him more, you need regular times where you are opening God's word and saying, show me yourself. And you say, well, life is really busy and I can't seem to find the time. Dallas Willard once said, time is not found, time is made. You've got to carve it out. Here's the second way to cultivate wonder and worship in your life. You have to do it in community. Notice 
Jesus does not go up this mountain alone. He, you know what he takes? He takes a community group, actually. He takes a small group. And you see, the average Christian thinks, I don't really need church, and I don't really need Christian community, and I don't really need other people to grow. But this passage is saying, no, no, no. If you want to grow in wonder, you can't do it alone. You've got to do it with other people. And let me go one step further than that. You've got to do it with other people who are not like you, who are different than you. Uh, In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis talks about losing one of his closest friends. So he was in a group of three best friends. This guy named Charles Williams, who was a a writer. The third guy was J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay, that's a pretty stellar friend group right there. C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien. And Lewis is talking about... um, He's talking about his friendship with, with Charles, and with, he calls J.R.R. Tolkien Ronald. And Charles died, and, and Lewis is talking about when Charles died, that he thought he would actually get more of Ronald, because now he had Ronald all to himself. But this is what he said. He said, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Hear this. And now that Charles is dead, far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. This is really profound what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying that he realized he got less of Ronald and not more, because there were things about Ronald that only Charles could bring out. See, human beings, we are so complex that no single person can bring out every aspect of another person. And if that is true on a human level, how much more true is that with God? See, you need other Christians who aren't like you, friends. Who, they, don't, they don't live in the neighborhood that you live in. They don't have the same color of skin that you do. They don't come from the same culture that you do or the same class that you do. And they're going to see different parts of Jesus Christ because they've had very different experiences in life and in this world. And so to see him and to know him and to grow in wonder and worship with him, you have got to be in relationship with them. This is why we talk so much about diversity in our church. It is not because we are trying to just check a box. It is because we are firmly convinced that we are deprived without it. We are missing out on things about the character and nature of God that would cause us to see and savor him more. It diminishes our lives and it limits our wonder and our worship. We need one another and we need people who are not like us to really wonder at who Jesus is. Now this brings us to the second point. Let's let's wonder for a minute at why He came. So we've talked about why Elijah is on this mountain. Let's talk about Moses for just a moment. And you've got to hang with me here for just a minute. Because we've got to do a little bit of background stuff in the Old Testament, okay, to really understand what's happening here. In the book of Exodus, when God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, do you know how he did it? He did it through a cloud. It was called the Shekinah Glory Cloud. You see it over and over and over again in the Old Testament. 
The Shekinah glory cloud, it was a sign of the presence of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the transcendence of God. It was this pillar of white cloud during the day, and then at night it turned into this flaming fire. And it led Israel out of Egypt and all the way to Mount Sinai. And in the book of Exodus, this cloud keeps showing up over and over and over again. In Exodus chapter 19, when Moses goes up the mountain where the Shekinah cloud is, God says, go down and tell the people to not even touch the mountain or they will die. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is on the mountain again and he says, God, let me see your glory. And God says, if you see it, it'll kill you. And then in Exodus chapter 40, it says that the glory of God came down on the temple, and that's why Moses couldn't even go in. Now, this is why throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, God is saying, look, you need need priests, and you need temples, and you need sacrifices. All of these things are highlighting the reality that God is holy and we are not. That God is perfect and we are not. That God is righteous and we are not. They're they're highlighting this fact that you cannot just walk right into the presence of God. Now, in Mark chapter 9, look what we have. We have a mountain. We have a cloud. We have Moses. And we have the voice of God. Do you see what is happening here? This is the Shekinah glory cloud. This is the presence of God. And notice in verse 7, it says that the cloud appeared and it covered them. You see, no wonder Peter says in verse 5, let's put up three shelters. That sounds kind of like a weird, you know, there's a lot of nervous chatter going on here with Peter. But that word shelters is actually the same word for temple, for tabernacle. You see, no wonder in verse 6, it says that the disciples did not know what to say. They were so frightened. What are they thinking in this moment? They're thinking, what happened to everyone who came into contact with that cloud in the Old Testament? Now, we need to pause here because I know that some of you in this room, you were thinking, man, does this guy know that it's like 2023 and we are in Oakland, California? I mean, what an old-fashioned, archaic way to talk about God. You know, this is, this is, this is so old-fashioned. God is love. God accepts everyone just the way they are. This stuff is so offensive to modern ears. So I've got to do a little bit of work to convince you. And I really hope that I can. Because it is the only way that there will be wonder and worship in your life. Have you ever... Have you ever been in the presence of real greatness? When I was doing college ministry at UC Berkeley at Cal, uh, I used to go swim in their pool. And if you don't know this, Cal has one of the top swimming programs in the country, like Olympic athletes all over the place, okay? And when, when the teams aren't practicing, when the men's team and women's team isn't practicing, the pool is actually open to other members of the public to be able to go and use this pool. So I was swimming one day, I like to go there and swim, 
there are two things that you need to know about my swimming habits. Number one, I do not do Speedos. Do not do them. I do, uh, you know, like dad bod swimming trunks. It's a much safer bet for me. Okay, number two, I don't do flip turns. If you're not familiar with what a flip turn is, it's where you actually like, you know, you flip under the water and you push off with your feet. It's way too complicated for me. I just touch the wall, take a big fat breath, and then go to the next lap, all right? But it's, it's, it's not impressive, but it's how I do it. All right, this particular afternoon, uh, I was swimming in the pool, and how do I say this? I was feeling pretty good about myself, actually. Um, I was very aware of the fact that I was, I was the fastest person in the pool that day. But then, <laughs> but then, but then I got to the end of a lap, and I went to turn around, and I looked up, and the entire Cal women's swim team had come out on the deck. And practice was about to start, and standing at the very end of my lane was Missy Franklin. Now, this was in about 2014, so let me give you a little history here. Missy Franklin in the 2012 Olympics was like the best swimmer at the whole thing. She won four gold medals. Do you know what happens when Missy Franklin is standing at the end of your <laughs> lane watching you? in your swim trunks, <laughs> knee length, doing touch turns. Let me tell you, you do not feel very good about yourself anymore. It is not an inspiring moment at all. You see, when you are in the presence of greatness, it can be traumatic, actually. It's terrifying, it's like a death. And see, you're laughing, but you know this. Listen, we got, a lot of, we got a lot of Berkeley students here this morning. Number one public university in the world. You guys were at the top of your class all through high school. And then you came to Berkeley. And you looked around and you realized there are people who are a lot smarter than you. What was that like? I'll tell you what it was like. It was traumatic. It was like an emotional and psychological death. You lost your sense of self. Who am I if I'm not the smartest? And friends, this applies across every area of life. If you pride yourself on career or money, you will always feel good about yourself until you come into contact with someone who's more successful than you. Coworkers will always feel like a threat. Are you coming into contact with people who, are, who have more money than you? If you base your sense of identity on beauty, it'll always be a threat. When you, this, is, this is why there's something unsettling to us when we are scrolling through Instagram at all of these other beautiful people. It's like we want to look and everything in us wants to look away. It's like a death. Now, if this is true on a human level, how much more true is this on a spiritual level with a God who is infinitely glorious and infinitely wise and infinitely just, just and perfect and holy and righteous. I mean, to come into contact with him, if you know yourself at all, 
would be traumatic. How could you survive? And I want to tell you the most amazing thing happens in this passage. The cloud covers the disciples and they don't die. You say, why do, why do they not die? Well, again, I told you, the key to this, verse 8. Look at this. They opened their eyes and all they saw was Jesus. They are safe because of Jesus. Jesus was the sacrifice that all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. He was the ultimate high priest that all of the priests in the Old Testament pointed to. He was the ultimate temple that all of the other temples pointed to. And he is the one who has made a way for us back into the presence and love of God. And you see, how did he do it? This is a very important question. How did he do it? You know how he did it? He did it by going up another mountain. The Mount of Calvary. And rather than being clothed in glory and honor, he was clothed in nakedness and humiliation and shame. And rather than being surrounded by dazzling light, all four Gospels tell us he was surrounded by darkness. And rather than hearing the voice of the Father, he got utter silence when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? And you see, friends, here is the Christian gospel. God rejected Jesus so that he could accept you and me. He put all of our sin and shame on him so that we could be clothed in his glory and honor. And so that now we can have his presence and we can know his love and so that the same words, listen to this, Christian, the same words that God the Father speaks over the Son in this passage, this is my Son whom I love, he can now speak over your life. You are my daughter. You are my Son who I love. And you see, to the extent that you believe this, there will be true wonder in your life. If you think, I am a generally good person, and I try to do the right things, and I even go to church, of course God loves me. Friends, there will be no wonder in your life. God's love and acceptance will seem rather boring to you. But if you are a Christian who knows that they are saved by the grace of God alone, through the finished work of Christ alone, then you will not say, of course God loves me. You will say, it is a wonder that God loves me, that he would do all of this for me. And there will be a sense of wow in your life. And this brings us to the last point. And I'm going to be very brief here. Let's wonder for just a moment at what he's promised to do. Now, some of you in this room, you're going through lots of difficulty in your life. Lots of suffering. Bills are not getting paid. Addiction is not getting healed. Marriages are falling apart. 
loneliness is not going away, or mental health is not going away, or the cancer is not going, I don't know what it is for you, but it is something, and maybe you have checked out for this sermon because you have felt like what I'm talking about today has no really meaning to your circumstances, and if that's the case, I want to invite you to check back in for just a moment. Because you might read this passage and you might think, how does a transfiguration have anything to do with my life today? Friends, let me tell you, it has everything to do with your life. Because buried in this passage is an incredible promise. See, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus, we looked at this last week, Jesus says to the disciples, I'm the Messiah and I'm going to suffer and die. And then he looks at them and he says, guess what? If you're going to follow me, you're going to suffer and die too. You see, those are hard words. Those are honest words. But they are hard words. But then right after these words, we get the transfiguration. Do you know who the transfiguration is for? Do you know why this happened? Do you know why God did this? It was not for Jesus. It was for the disciples. And it is for you and it is for me. God knows how hard it is to hear the news that your life is not going to go like you want. That there will be real seasons of sorrow and sadness and suffering. And that there are going to be moments in life where you feel like your world is falling apart and you are wondering, how am I ever going to get through? And you see, here is the promise. There is glory on the other side of hardship and suffering. That's what the transfiguration is. It is a foretaste of resurrection. It is a foretaste of future glory. And I don't just mean Jesus' glory. I mean our glory. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Just as he was raised, so shall we be raised. Just as he overcame sin and death, so one day will we overcome sin and death. The transfiguration Friends, it's God's promise to you today that no matter what is going on in your life right now, your story is going to end well. That our crucified Savior and King is going to return in glory and power, and he is going to make all things new. The transfiguration is God's promise to you and me that all of our bad things are going to work for good, that all of our truly good things will last forever, and that our best things are yet to come. And you see, amen. And this is why God invites us to this table. You know, this table, we come to this table, we don't just look back at who Jesus is and what he has done. No, 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 this table also invites us to look forward to what he has promised to one day do. The night that Jesus gave this meal to his disciples, 
He promised them. He said to them, I will not eat and drink of this meal again until I eat and drink of it anew with you. What's he pointing to? He is pointing to future glory. He's pointing to resurrection. He's pointing to the day when he will come again and make all things new. And you see, the world, the world drinks to forget. We drink to remember. We drink to remember. The world drinks to escape reality. We drink to live in light of this future reality and this future hope and this future promise. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, would you awaken our hearts and our minds and our affections as we come to this table this morning? Would you fill us with a sense of wonder and worship of who your son is and of all that he has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.